0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And
1: I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going into the vault to bring you an episode from last year. This one originally published on July 14th. 2020. And this one was called Heaven and Hell with Bart Ehrman. This was an interview that I did with a, uh, with a secular biblical historian named Bart Ehrman, who's a really interesting and, and passionate scholar who, who knows a lot and is really fun to listen to. And it's all, all about the origins of the Christian concepts of heaven and hell. Uh, I thought this was a, a really, really interesting discussion. I, I love talking to Bart. And so we hope you enjoy this classic episode. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And this week, we are going to be featuring a couple of interviews that I recorded last week because uh, last week, Robert, you were out of, quote, the office. You were at least you were off work for a bit. And uh, so, so I recorded conversations with authors of some books, uh, one book that's already out this year and one book that's coming up. So on Thursday of this week, we're going to be airing a conversation that I had with the author of a fascinating upcoming book about the evolution. Evolutionary Biology of Cancer. But today, we're going to be exploring a topic in the realm of ancient history and religion. And if you've followed us for a while, I think you probably know this about us, that one of our favorite kind of trails to go down is tracing the evolution of religious ideas through ancient history. I mean, I, I think I've outed myself on this podcast before as a the kind of non-religious person who loves the Bible. Like, you know, I, I love to read ancient religious texts and learn about them and see how the ideas from the ancient world have sort of filled Filtered through to us today, and, and shaped the societies we live in, and so that's exactly the kind of thing we're going to be diving into in this episode. Uh, I'm talking with a secular biblical historian named Bart Ehrman about his most recent book, which is called Heaven and Hell: A History of the Afterlife. This book was released in March of this year by Simon and Schuster, and it's all about the Christian ideas of life after death, where they come from in ancient history, what influenced their development, and how they changed over time. Uh, so th- there was a part that's cited in the intro of Bart's book where he, he talks about a Pew research poll that was conducted a few years ago, I think maybe it was in 2015, where uh, it found that 72% of Americans believe in a literal heaven, and 58% believe believe in a literal hell. And yet I think most Americans would be deeply surprised, even shocked to learn what historians can show about the origins of these beliefs. And the strange thing is that like the historical conclusions that Bart's going to talk about in this episode are not fringe or unusual among secular scholars of the Bible and historians of the ancient Near East. Uh, This is Utterly mainstream critical scholarship, and yet I think regular people are, especially in the United States, are going to find it very surprising.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I I want to stress something here for everybody. So I I just got back uh, to work this morning, and I plugged into like a pre-production cut of this interview, and it's really it's really excellent. So if you're even slightly scared away by the idea of uh, an interview with a secular biblical uh, scholar, uh, don't be because because is, is tremendous. He's, uh, he's funny, uh, 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 very high energy. Uh, I,
1: I think you're really going to enjoy this chat that Joe had with Bart here. Yeah, Bart's full of knowledge, good humor, passion for his subject. I think you're really going to enjoy the episode. But before we get into it, I'll just give a little bit of background on Bart. So here's his biography. Bart D. Ehrman is a leading authority on the New Testament and the history of early Christianity and the author or editor of more than 30 books, including the New York Times bestsellers Misquoting Jesus, How Jesus Became God, and The Triumph of Christianity. And that last one's really interesting. It's about how Christianity took over the Roman Empire and went from a really small religion to the dominant religion of the empire uh, in just a matter of a few centuries – Anyway, uh, so he is a distinguished professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he has created eight popular audio and video courses for the great courses. He has been featured in Time, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, and has appeared on NBC, CNN, and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, as well as the History Channel, National Geographic Channel, BBC, NPR, all the hits. Uh, his most recent book, again, is Heaven and Hell. Uh, just one more thing before we get into it. I want to mention obviously. Obviously, we are dealing with the, uh, the audio constraints of, uh, of remote recording in the age of COVID-19. So, uh, for example, around the 12-minute mark in the episode, there is briefly some background noise. It sounds like a fan was turned on or there was some rain. It only lasts for about a minute or so. And, and so uh, please just put up with uh, a little bit of background noise. And it, it's very brief, I promise. It's
0: not the sounds of hell, right? Not uh, (laughs) not audio recordings of the underworld leaking up through uh,
1: some sort of mining microphone. Right. The well to hell was not unleashed in (laughs) Blake's office. Uh, So, yeah, I would say uh, without any further ado, let's jump right in. Bart Ehrman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yes, thanks for having me. So your book, Heaven and Hell, uh, I just finished reading yesterday and I I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, And I want to say that I started reading this book at a very opportune time because though I didn't plan it this way, I'm also currently in the middle of rereading The Divine Comedy. Actually, my wife and I are uh, reading it together. And of course, the Divine Comedy, Dante, is wonderful poetry, but it's also psychologically fascinating uh, because when you go through the theology of Dante, you get the sense of somebody who is simultaneously ingenious and thoughtful and in some ways very intellectually bold and open-minded for his historical context, but in other ways – Dante is also very limited and provincial and in, in a word medieval, like the way you <laughs> see him taking so much pleasure in designing horrific tortures for his enemies from these, you know, petty 13th century political struggles in Italy, working with ancient religious texts. Do you find yourself encountering this kind of irony embodied within the same author or tradition a lot?
2: Part of my book on heaven and hell is dealing with uh, some of the earliest forerunners of Dante um, Many people think that he was creative in coming up with this idea of a guided tour of the Inferno and the Paradiso and the and the uh, Purgatorio. And, but in fact, he was borrowing from uh, the, the, the motif of a, of a guided tour of the realms of the dead from earlier authors and uh, including in the Christian tradition. I think one thing that very seriously uh, contrasts between uh, Dante and his early forerunners that I look at in the in about I look at basically from the Second century up to maybe the fifth Christian century, so uh, a very long time before Dante. But the, the main contrast is uh, most of the authors of these works were not geniuses, <laughs> and, and the works uh, the works are uh, they are they can be very graphic in their descriptions, especially of hell. Um, uh, they are less, uh, they're less attentive to what's going on in heaven. Uh, and so it's not quite like Dante, where you get basically equal coverage between heaven, per, uh, purgatory and and hell. Uh, but, it, you know, the, the ancient people are, for some reason, more interested in the torments of hell. My guess is that it's because uh, it was easier to describe, uh, you know, if you're trying to describe <laughs> eternal bliss <laughs> and everybody is like equally <laughs> happy forever, uh, what, you know, what, what more what do you say? I mean, you just got to talk about their bliss for a little while. There's, there's, whereas if you want to talk about eternal torment, well, you know, you can design all sorts of creative punishments. And so uh, you just can let your, uh, your uh, creative juices flow. And so that's what these ancient authors do. So they, there's nothing at the level of a Dante in these sources, but they are very interesting, in many ways more interesting, of course, for understanding how Christianity developed than Dante, who's coming after you know, centuries and centuries of development.
1: Well, to ground the discussion, maybe it would help to look at a specific example. Could you talk for a second about some of the specifics of, say, the Apocalypse of Peter?
2: yeah 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 so um the uh the earliest one we have with these uh these guided tours is is the one you mentioned the the apocalypse of peter we we had known they had known for centuries that there was an apocalypse of peter because it almost made it into the new testament uh there were church fathers uh from the fourth century the fifth century who thought the apocalypse of peter is part of the bible uh but eventually didn't make it in and it got lost until it turned up in uh, 1887 uh when it turned up, it caused a big uh, uproar. I mean, because, oh my God, this is like a, this is a guided tour. Peter, the apostle Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, is given a tour of heaven and hell by Jesus himself. And so it's a terrific text. I mean, it describes, uh, as I was saying, in in fairly brief order, uh, the uh, heaven, which is a great place. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there are lush trees and vegetation everywhere and it smells good and everybody's happy. And so, you know, it's with, you know, a a nice summer breeze blowing through the whole time. So it's great. It's great. Uh, But then he sees the torments in hell. And uh, they are nasty. And, uh, and the interesting thing in this case is that many of the punishments uh, match the crimes. And so if somebody is, say, a, a, a habitual blasphemer, they, they, uh, they blaspheme God. Well, their, their sinning organ is their mouth. And so they are, these are hanged by their tongues over eternal flames. Uh, women who have braided their hair to make themselves more uh, attractive so they can seduce men are hanged by their hair over eternal flames. Uh, the men they seduced are hanged by their genitals over <laughs> eternal flames. And they cry out, we didn't know it would come to this. <laughs> and so, uh, and so it, kind of, it kind of goes on. And Unlike Dante, which has a very sophisticated number of uh, political and religious points, th- the point here is pretty clear. There are a bunch of things you better not do. <laughs> and, you know, if you do, you're in big trouble. So like, just don't do it. So basically, the basic lies don't sin. <laughs> and uh, so it's it's fairly, fairly elementary, both uh, theologically and politically.
1: So already uh, by this later, did you say the Apocalypse of Peter is probably a second century work? Uh, Yeah.
2: So church fathers know about it uh, in the uh, second century, and there are good reasons for thinking that was written in the early part of the second century. So maybe just like 20 or 30 years after some of the books of the New Testament.
1: Wow. So already by this point, we have some beliefs about heaven and hell that look very much like uh, beliefs that people still have today about heaven and hell. And I I think maybe this should lead us to what I, I would say is probably the biggest single gut punch of the book which is that these standard beliefs about the afterlife that you would find among probably most Christians today, the belief that when you die, your soul separates from your body and either travels to heaven, which is a place of eternal bliss, or to hell, which is a place of eternal torture. These teachings, you argue, are not found in the Hebrew Bible, which is what Christians would call the Old Testament. And they are not the teachings of the historical Jesus. And in fact, unless I'm wrong— you can barely find anything like them in the New Testament at all. Like maybe in a parable in the Gospel of Luke. Is that about right?
2: That that is not just about right. That is right. <laughs> uh, the the uh, the old te- the Christian Old Testament uh, does not talk anywhere about souls dying and going to people dying and their souls going to reward in heaven or punishment in hell. It's not there at all. And so part of my book is explaining what you do find. In the Hebrew Bible, you get a range of different views in the Hebrew Bible, but you don't get that view. <laughs> and uh, I try to show how that developed into a different view that Jesus had. Uh, And that Jesus himself did not believe that your body died and your soul went to one place or the other. And neither did the apostle Paul uh, for most of his life. Uh, The book of Revelation doesn't teach that. And so the question of my book is, I try try to show all that, but then the question is, well, then where'd it come from? (laughs) Because everybody simply assumes, of course, that this is, you know, they believe this because the Bible teaches it. No, actually, the Bible doesn't teach that. So uh, that's, so it seems like a pretty important point to me, (laughs) given the fact that there are two billion Christians in the world, most of whom believe in this, <laughs> and they just assume it's in the Bible, but it's, it's not.
1: Yeah, it, it seems so hard to believe because I would say the belief in heaven and hell, basically along the lines I just described, is not just a very common belief. I think to many people, it is the defining or the characteristic belief when they conceive of their own faith.
2: Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and I, I completely understand that. I mean, when I, you know, I grew up believing in heaven and hell myself. I mean, I was raised in a Christian home and I became an evangelical Christian when I was a teenager. And then I really believed in heaven and hell, especially hell. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and so I was, I was gung ho all about it. And that's part of what really made me want to write the book was that I know, uh, there are a lot of people who are of course, hopeful for heaven and a lot of people who are just terrified of hell. And, uh, you know, a lot of people just don't know, uh, but, uh, you know, it's worth knowing where these ideas came from, because people shouldn't believe them because they think they're in the Bible. That That is because they're not. <laughs> uh, as you said, maybe like in one little passage, like in one, it's tucked away in the Gospel of Luke. But I mean, but, but basically they're not there. They, these authors had a different view, and it's worth knowing what these different views were, uh, because uh, you simply shouldn't assume this is the standard view and always has been among Christians.
1: Yeah, and it's... Um it's remarkable how difficult these beliefs are to shake, even if you rationally know otherwise. I mean, I, I uh, personally, I grew up in East Tennessee, surrounded by a lot of fundamentalist Christianity. And when I think about the way I conceive of hell, I don't rationally Uh, believe in in a hell anymore. But I think of my mind sort of as a mansion where there's a room in the back and occasionally the door opens and that belief just gets out and walks around. And I don't know when that's going to happen. Do you find the same thing? Does it sometimes just come out without uh, seemingly unbidden?
2: Not as much now as it did. Uh, you know, when I left when I left the faith many years ago, now 25 years ago or whatever, a long time ago, when I, I left Christianity for a long time, one of the things that was holding me back to begin with, before I left, was the fear of hell. You know, I was thinking, you know, like if I... Like uh, you know, I, I really think that people are going to be punished after death by God. But now I'm doubting my faith. And if I leave my faith, what if I was right in the first place? <laughs> and now you know I mean, it took took the wrong turn. Then I'm screwed. I mean, it's like this is not going to be good. Uh, and so, but then when I did leave the faith, I just I became convinced that God is not going to be torturing people for trillions of years uh, because they messed up for twenty or they didn't believe exactly the right thing. I just it just it's impossible. And so. Over time, what I did is I ended up becoming more of a rationalist, and I became more of a materialist. And so, you know, I'm a complete materialist now, a naturalist. I mean, I just, you know, I don't I don't think there is some kind of other realm. Uh, this is it. Uh, and I don't think there's some other life. This is it. And for me, um, maybe because I'm such a rationalist that uh, the thought doesn't really creep in my head too much anymore. That, yeah, actually, you know, it might happen. Uh, I just don't think it is.
1: I'm sure a lot of people are still... Uh, reeling from the surprise of, of you saying that uh, that in fact the Hebrew Bible doesn't teach heaven and hell and that uh, this was not the teaching of the historical Jesus, that there are probably things running through their heads to say like, wait a minute, that can't be right, can it? So I think maybe we should talk uh, specifically a bit about the, the evolution of beliefs about the afterlife that we see in the ancient Near East to the ancient Greco-Roman world and then in the Bible. So uh, can we talk about beliefs about bodies, souls, and what happens to them at the time of death, uh, maybe starting uh, among in the pre-Christian ancient world, maybe among the, the ancient Jewish thought, views that you would find in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah,
2: yeah. This is, you know, as you know, this is really what my book does, is it traces these ideas all the way back as, as early as we have records. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have records going, we, we have written texts going back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, which as it turns out is a forerunner of Dante Gilgamesh actually has a tour to the afterlife. and so <laughs> and in the old and so I go through the Old Testament all the way so that the ancient he- what one reason that the Old Testament doesn't have this view that you die and your soul goes to heaven or hell while your body dies is because ancient Hebrews didn't have the idea that your soul and your body were two entities that could be distinguished from each other um, the idea that you've got a soul and a body that you've got made up of two parts is a kind of dualism, right? Two, two, two fundamental components, dualism. Um, ancient Hebrews were not dualistic in their thinking about the human. The ancient Hebrews thought a human being was one thing not two separable things. And it goes all the way back to Genesis where God creates the first human, Adam. He, he makes Adam out of the dirt. And so there's this kind of this dirt thing on the on the ground. And it's just lying, it's inert, it's not alive. God breathes life into Adam. And so he brings life into Adam's soul. Uh, he brings, it brings a soul into Adam, which is his breath. Adam now has his breath, and that makes him alive, and Adam will be alive as long as he has his breath, but when he stops breathing, he's dead, now, we ourselves, we ourselves have a kind of, we have an analogous thing about breath, you know, when, when you stop breathing, your breath doesn't go anywhere, it's just gone. And that's how they understood the soul. It wasn't something separable from the breath or the body. When your soul, when it leaves the body like the breath leaves the it's just gone. It doesn't go anywhere. And so Hebrews didn't have, ancient Hebrews didn't have this idea that the soul would live on because the soul is simply the thing that made you alive. And when you're not alive, it doesn't exist anymore. And so that's why in the Old Testament, um, nobody talked about the soul living on after death. They, there are places... Um, Where uh, the Hebrew Bible authors will talk about a place, it sounds like a place, uh, that sometimes is called Sheol. Um, And so uh, people mistake that as being like this area that everybody goes to when they die. They die and their souls go down to Sheol. And uh, what I try to show in my book is that probably that's not what Sheol means. Um, the word sheol itself is often uh, the, part of the problem is that Bible translators really sometimes mess us up. And so often, when bi- English Bible translators will come across the word sheol, which just occurs about 60 times in the Old Testament, it's not very common, but about 60 times, they'll translate it as hell. Well, what are you supposed to read? You're supposed to think when you read, uh, yeah, you know, God saved me from hell, or I don't want to go to hell. But but It actually doesn't say hell. It says Sheol, and Sheol is not hell. Hell, what we think of as hell, is where your soul goes to get punished. But that's not found in Hebrew thought. And so what I show in my my book is that when, when Sheol gets used in the Hebrew Bible, it is almost always set... Um, as the synonym for grave or pit or the you know the place your body is placed um, when it dies and so it looks like sheol is simply where your remains are it's not a place um and so uh, so there's no place in the Bible in the Old Testament where there's a place that you go either for rewards or punishment. You just die. And that's why that's why the uh, Hebrew authors, like in the Psalms, are so afraid of death because they're not going to have life anymore. There's not going to be anything. They're, they're not going to be able to enjoy anything. There'll be no physical pleasure. Um, they won't even be able to worship God. They say this and God won't even remember them. won't remember them because they won't exist. And so they won't even think about them. And so that's the situation with the Hebrew Bible, that people are made up of body and soul. When they die, their life is over and they get deposited somewhere and they want to get to They want to have a nice burial, as everybody does. But I mean, they're not going to be around to enjoy it. They'll be dead.
1: Yeah, I think that view is extremely clear in books, say, like Ecclesiastes. Um, I wonder, though, about uh, people might be thinking about uh, what about a passage like the The Witch of Indore story? Well, maybe can you talk uh, for a moment about that story and, and how you would interpret that?
2: Yeah, no, this is good because it's exactly the passage people are going to be thinking of. And you get passages in the New Testament people are going to be thinking of. And so obviously I have to talk about all these passages in my book. And I, I should stress that when I talk about these passages... I'm not coming up with some kind of creative like weird new interpretation of these passages. The, the kinds of stuff I talk about in my book are things that biblical scholars have known for a very long time. Because most people, you know, they don't, <laughs> most people don't talk to biblical scholars for good reasons. <laughs> and so they don't know. But I mean, so I'm not, I'm not saying anything unusual at all here for a biblical side. They would just all say, yeah, well, of course. Um, so the, the Witch of Endor is a story in the, uh, in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 um, Samuel's one of the main characters is well, Samuel is the main character, since hence the name. Samuel is a prophet who is a, the last of the great prophets, and he he is the uh, counselor for King Saul. And King Saul is always getting in trouble and always messing up and doing things wrong, and God's always ticked off at him. And so, and so, but Samuel dies, and Saul gets himself into another mess. The the opposing uh the the country next door, the the um, Philistines, are out to Attack the uh, Israelite armies, and they're surrounded. And Saul doesn't know what to do, and his advisor's dead, and and so he decides he's going to get a medium, uh, uh, like a it's called the witch of Endor, but it's more like she performs necromancy. She raises the soul from the dead uh, in order to ask what's going on, and so. He he commissions this woman who's afraid to do it because he, he comes to her in disguise because he himself the king has passed a law against doing this kind of thing <laughs> you can't do this and so, and so but she's a medium and she's going to do it because and he he she doesn't know it's him and she, but anyway so it's it's great and it's a fantastic fantastic story but she can he convinces her she uh, to raise Samuel from the dead so Saul will be instructed about what to do about this war uh, and and Samuel comes up out of the dead and he's and he's angry. Because Saul's brought him back. Uh, And he tells Saul, uh, you know, you've just disobeyed God one too many times. And so, yes, there is going to be a battle tomorrow. And uh, by the way, tomorrow... You'll be down here, too. <laughs> and so, uh, okay, so it's not good news, and it's exactly what happens. Okay, well, so that sounds like a soul is alive after death, and it's down someplace, and it comes back. and can go back and forth, and it sure sounds like that, doesn't it? Uh, yes, it does. It absolutely does, until you start looking at it more closely. This passage never says that uh, Samuel was in Sheol, or in Hades, or in hell, or or in gehenna or anywhere else he comes up but why would a body why would somebody come up they come up because they're buried in the ground he comes up as a body not as a spirit the way Saul recognizes him is he's wearing Samuel's clothes <laughs> and so this isn't like a this isn't a ghost this is this is like Samuel and, and Samuel, when he's upset, he doesn't say something like, you know, I was having such a great time up there in heaven. And now you bring me back. What are you doing? He, he, we don't know why he's angry. You know, was he having, enjoying a good sleep? We, but he doesn't say anything about being with anyone else. He just, he, this is not something you're supposed to do. You're the king and you know this and you pass this law. You can't do this. And so God's really ticked off because God told you not to do this. And so, um, uh, and so it is not his. Um, it is not a soul separated from the body that comes back. Samuel actually comes back in bodily form, fully clothed, as an old man, and uh, and he, he has. There's nothing to indicate that he's been either in a place of torment or in a place of reward. And so Hebrew Bible scholars don't look on this as an instance of which somebody you know showing that when you die your soul goes to one place or another. It's the only place, by the way, where. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, where that kind of necromancy uh, is performed, but uh, we do know that uh, some a lot of Israelites thought it could be performed because there are all these laws against it in the Bible. <laughs> you right. don't, make a, don't make a bunch of laws unless people are doing something, and so they they at least think there are seances going on, and you know something's happening. But you know what it was they were thinking is hard to know.
1: This is kind of a tangent, but that does make me. Wonder about this uh, so it's it's an example of this belief in the persecution of witchcraft or or necromancy. W- why do you think it is that monotheistic religions like Judaism and Christianity would have been so? opposed to people independently practicing magic or consulting the dead. Uh, In fact, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is also sort of one of the horrors of the Book of First Enoch, right, where these evil heavenly creatures come down and they teach human women how to do magic spells. Is that right?
2: yeah they don 't mention
1: necromancy
2: there, but they do they do teach uh, humans all sorts of uh, practical things that uh, god doesn 't like <laughs> and mm-hmm. so that's kind of, that 's kind of what 's going on with this necromancy thing when you 're raising somebody up in a seance or, or however you're doing it through magical rites, um, the ancient thought was that this person um, it's it's not that the person's soul is living on it's the person has temporarily come back to life again their soul has come back into their body and because they have died and they've come back from the dead they have these kind of powers and in monotheistic religion there's only supposed to be one superhuman power Mm -hmm. And that's God, and so these other powers are threatening, and people usually turned to uh, necromancy and other forms of magic, precisely because the established religion wasn't working too well for them, Uh, and so they weren't they weren't learning what they needed to learn, they weren't getting what they needed to get, they weren't you know it just wasn't, and so they try an alternative means, and in these monotheistic religions, God is a jealous God, and he doesn't like it when you go to some other divine force, and so that that's why
1: like a form of cheating almost
2: well it's a form of cheating it's like um you know you go to your uh, you go to your priest for advice and then you go home and you pull out your ouija board i mean look just, right yeah you know, <laughs> like, just do what i said don't pull out your ouija board <laughs> right do people use Ouija boards anymore? I when I was a kid, we used Ouija boards. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <Lovely. okay. laughs>
1: Always great. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, so so that's the view of uh, uh, of the ancient Jews. They, they would have mostly believed, and of course, we should acknowledge that whenever we're talking about uh, views and ascribing them to groups of people, there was probably some diversity, but we're talking about like the dominant views that are represented in the record, right?
2: Well, it's, it's a very important point because in my book, I try to show there are, in fact, different views in the Hebrew Bible itself, I mean, you mentioned Ecclesiastes, and, you know, the book of Daniel has a very different kind of view. And so there, there are varieties. The one variety you don't find in the Hebrew
1: Bible is that you die and your soul goes to heaven or hell. Right. Um, so then what about the uh, – to turn away from uh, ancient Judaism, what about the influence of Greek philosophy and like the ideas of Socrates and Plato uh, and and how those came through in the pagan beliefs of the Roman Empire?
2: Yeah, uh, it's very important, uh, far more important than most people realize. In the earliest Greek records we have, uh, they come – our earliest records come from Homer, uh, from the Iliad and the Odyssey. And uh, the earliest uh, forerunner of Dante in the Western tradition, so Gilgamesh is in the ancient Near East, but in the Western tradition, the earliest uh, forerunner of Dante is uh, Homer. Odyssey, the Odyssey book 11, is Odysseus going into the underworld uh, and, uh, and visiting people there, including his mother <laughs> and his, uh, former colleagues in the, in the Trojan war. And, and he meets all these people. And, and the point of this description is to show what it's like down there. And it's not good. Uh, it's not good for anybody because everybody is just down there the same. They've got no, they're like they're shadows. They're called shadows. They're not even people anymore. They're, but they kind of shadows of people and they've got no strength and no power, and no mind. They can't think, they can't remember. It's like, they can't talk. It's like, they just, ah, oh, it's awful forever. Uh, by the time you get to Plato, about 400 years later, so Plato's writing at the early 4th century BCE, um, so, you know, 400 years before Jesus' ministry. Plato, by the time of Plato, Greeks had started thinking that this idea that like everybody goes to Hades and it's the same and it's boring for eternity and there's no, that's not right. I mean, how can I, you mean that somebody who is a valiant Warrior who is upright and who always does the good thing and helps other people. Uh, He dies, and like, that's it. He doesn't get any reward. And there's some schmuck over here, like this tyrant who oppresses people and just cares about his own self and getting massively rich and powerful and doesn't care who he hurts in the process. He dies and he doesn't get punished. No, that can't be how it is. And so Greeks came up with this idea that, in fact, after death, there are rewards and punishments um we don't know if other people at the same time came up with this idea but we we find it most firmly in the greeks especially in plato who devoted a lot of time in his dialogue in his surviving dialogues to show that the soul and the body are two different things and that the mistake people make in life is catering to their body when the important thing is their soul and so Plato was pushing for philosophy, the, the love of knowledge, that's what philosophy means, the love of wisdom, uh, because he thought we needed to tend to the needs of our inner selves, especially our minds and our, uh, our mental states and our values and our views of what's right and wrong and our ethics and how we live. And those are the things we should be concerned about. Not like you know, getting drunk all the time and having parties and having sex randomly. It's like Plato's saying, no, that's just catering to your body. And the problem is, you, if, you, if you give in to your body's pleasures, then you're going to not pay any attention to your soul. And when you die, your soul's going to live on, but your body's going to die. And so you need to make sure your soul's doing well when it dies, or it's going to be bad news. And so Plato, Plato tells these myths. Of the afterlife, he calls them myths. Uh, he, he, I don't think he means them literally, but he, he tells these kind of stories of people who die and they check out what it's like afterwards. And those who tend to their soul have very good afterlives, and those who are just uh, you know licentious uh, tyrannical bastards, they, you know they're tortured forever. <laughs> and so you get rewards and punishments. And so Plato, um, Plato popularized this idea. It's not clear that he invented it, uh, but it's found in a number of places in his dialogues, especially, uh, say, in in uh, the Phaedo uh, and in the Republic. And it ended up becoming a hugely significant uh, understanding of things for the history of the development of heaven and hell.
1: So there's a curious fact from your book that uh, caught my attention, which is that you mentioned several times how for, for many ancient people, The worst fate imaginable was to be denied a decent burial. Uh, And in a minute, when we talk about the beliefs of Jesus, we can talk about the meaning of Gehenna, this word that's sometimes translated as hell in the New Testament. But uh, before that, could you just help us understand this mindset of like, what, what was it like and what were the causes of the mindset where you're obsessed with uh, not having a, 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 you know, a profane, uh, disrespected burial. And I know this, this shows up in lots of uh, yeah. folk tales beyond just the Bible, like the Grateful Dead folk motif where, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, a person on a journey comes across a corpse that's being denied a decent burial and then pays, the hero pays for the corpse to get a decent burial. Yeah. And then later that spirit comes back to help the hero in in disguise in some way. I think this occurs in the book of Tobit
2: yeah 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 in some ways it seems strange to the modern mentality but in other ways it doesn't uh but let me just state what you just said and state it emphatically in most cultures we know about at least in the western world uh not getting a decent burial was a horrible fate uh and people really were afraid of it uh because not that not that they were going to suffer in hell for it or anything it's just like there's something about getting a decent burial that brought closure to life and if you don't have closure to life it's like your life, it just didn't end up well. Um, and you find this, you find it in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, you certainly find it in Greek uh, understandings of things. You find it in Roman ideas. I mean, it's just, it's all throughout. And it's in Judaism and it's in Christianity. The, the modern analogy, I guess, is uh, people don't think about that so much because just about everybody gets a decent burial. Although, you know, some people don't want to die at sea and kind of be thrown in there and be eaten by fish. I mean, you know, yeah, I don't like that. Or some people don't like the idea of, of um, uh, you know, of how they're going to be buried or where they're going to be buried or, you know, they, they you know, no, I don't want to be cremated. No, that's spooky. <laughs> you know, or, or <laughs> I don't want to be buried. There are worms down there. No, oh, that's spooky. So we do, we do think about that. But the other way we think about it is we think, you know, I wonder how many people are going to be at my funeral, you know, <laughs> like you worry about yeah. it. Like you worry about it. Well, why are you worried about you're not going to be there it's like you <laughs> won't even know so it like we, and so it doesn't make any sense but we do and it's like that only to like the 100th power in the in the ancient world without a decent burial uh you know they're afraid of it uh they and and it was a horrible way to end your
1: life it's even weaponized sometimes i believe it was in a book of yours i read uh Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you talked about how uh, part of the fear of crucifixion in the Roman Empire was not just that it was painful, not just that you would die, but specifically that it was a humiliation of the corpse, that the corpse would be left to the scavenging animals and exposed and not be given a decent burial.
2: Yeah, no, it's one of the, it's interesting, you know, when you when you read ancient documents on crucifixion, every, everybody gets their knowledge about crucifixion from what everybody else says. I mean, modern people, the way you know what it's like to be crucified is somebody else has told you and somebody else told them, somebody else told them, and nobody bothers actually to read what they say in the ancient sources about it. It's interesting, there's no actual description of the process in the ancient source, like there's no description of how they actually did it, but there are a number of references to what happens after they did it, Uh, when sometimes meant to be dark humor and sometimes meant very seriously. But uh, you get these references to the bodies being on the cross for days and being eaten by the scavengers, especially the birds. And, um, uh, you know, that's part of the punishment. You don't get a decent burial. You, you are uh, you're torn to shreds by the animals. And so like this is and people would watch this happening to somebody. And so, I mean, in the Roman world, crucifixion was used as a deterrent to crime. Uh, you know, they, they didn't have the idea that uh, developed in, in America that capital punishment is fine so long as you do it as privately and theoretically as painlessly as possible Romans had the opposite idea you do it publicly and you make it as torturous as you can and as humiliating as can so everybody seeing this thing says oh my god I'm not going to do that because you know this is what's going to happen and So you know, I'm not going to steal a chariot <laughs> oh boy that's what they do and so uh yeah so yes but they did leave they apparently did leave them on the crosses and that's part of it
1: because they couldn't get a decent burial OK, so even if we don't fully understand the causes of this difference in belief, we should always have it in mind that having your corpse desecrated or not getting a decent burial is just like the worst thing you can imagine yeah. in the ancient world.
2: Yeah, that's why in, in all these scenes, you know, you have if somebody like in like in a war narrative, you know, they desecrate the body, they'll drag it around the city or something. This is just mm-hmm. thought to be horrible. Of course, it still is. <laughs> it still is. Yeah. yeah.
0: All right. We're going to take a quick
1: break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. Uh, so maybe we should talk now about the teachings of Jesus. I know there are several, uh, there are a lot of other things uh, in your book that you cover about the, you know, before we get to Jesus, you talk about the evolution of Jewish thought and some of the later Jewish writings, uh, like uh, like the book of Daniel and, and Maccabees. And maybe we can come back to that if you want. But um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering about something we teased earlier, which is that, okay, if the historical Jesus did not Preach modern beliefs about heaven and hell. What were the teachings of the historical Jesus with regards to the afterlife? And you may also need to talk a bit here. Uh, about historical method, like why why can't we just read the Gospels to know what the historical Jesus taught?
2: Yeah, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have to provide some background in the development of Jewish thought to make sense of this. So I am gonna go back to Daniel, okay? Uh, because you can't understand Jesus' views without understanding the context that he's that he's in. Um, most of the Hebrew Bible thinks that, as I was saying, thinks that when a person dies, that's the end of the story. They're dead, uh, and there's no no afterlife of any kind. You're just dead. And I pointed out the Greeks ended up had something similar to begin with, but then with Plato, it started. You've got to have rewards and punishments, and that same development happened within Judaism, but in a different way. It's not clear if they were influenced by Greek thought, or or it's not clear how it happened exactly. But about uh, I don't know 250 years before Jesus, um, a number of Jewish thinkers started thinking that in fact, death cannot be the end of the story. And it can't be the end of the story for a very specific Jewish reason. Ancient Jews believed that God had called them, the Jews, to be his people. They were the chosen people. God had given them the law. If they kept the law, they'd keep up their end of the bargain. And God would keep up his end of the bargain and protect them and, uh, and be on their side and help them out when they were in need. As time went on, century after century went by, and Jews were not helped. (laughs) They were constantly being wiped out, Uh, constant internal problems, uh, economic problems, uh, problems with, I mean, just various things of hunger and disease and... Uh, crop failure but also destruction in war military disaster not having possession of the land God had promised them and often you know the, the ancient people would say yeah it's because we're disobeying God and God's punishing us that was, that was the view of the prophets in the Old Testament every prophet in the Old Testament says that you know the reason you suffer is because God's punishing you and you need to stop doing that and then he'll reward you well at some point Jews start saying you know look we're doing the best we can here uh, You know, we, we may not be like the most perfect." human beings on earth but we're doing our best to follow god's law we're we're eating kosher we're keeping the sabbath we're observing the festivals we're circumcising our babies and these pagans over here are complete schmucks, and they are ruthless and they're destroying us and surely there has to be an answer to that Uh, so what ended up happening in judaism is the answer was that was this The answer that arose about 200, 250 years before Jesus was that, yes, these things are happening now and God's people are suffering, but it's not just because God's punishing them. There are also forces in the world that are opposed to God and his people. They are against us and they have power in this world and they are making us suffer. This is when Jews started developing the idea that there's a devil, uh, there 's Satan, a figure who is opposed to God, gets imagined and and talked about, and Satan has henchmen, they call them demons, and there are other forces in this world, and they 're out to get us so the question well why why is that? Well, they had different explanations it. well, humans sinned, and so these powers were led into the world, or is because angels did this or they have different explanations that are a little bit fuzzy sometimes, but they, but you have these evil forces. The good news is. That God ultimately is sovereign and he ultimately is going to reward his people. Um, God is going to intervene in history and he will destroy these forces of evil who are ruining people's lives, who are running the kingdoms in charge now. And he's going to take them out of power and he's going to bring in his own kingdom, the kingdom of God that will be ruled by his representative, the Messiah, who will uh, establish a utopian state. Uh, And so these Jews, uh, modern scholars, call this Jewish view apocalypticism from the word apocalypse. Uh, At the end of this age, this age is bad. It's getting worse. But the apocalypse is coming. And when the apocalypse comes, then God will destroy these forces of evil and bring in his good kingdom on earth. The first place you find this in the Hebrew Bible is in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapters 7 through 12, especially. You start finding an apocalyptic view. Uh, Daniel was written about 200 years before Jesus was active in his ministry, 180 years, 200 years before Jesus was active. Uh, by that time, this had become a very popular view in Judaism is a view that so far as we can tell was held by the majority of Jews. Um, it's certainly written by the majority of Jewish authors that we have from the period, uh, that God was soon to intervene and bring in this kingdom. The thing about this kingdom was that it was not that your soul was going to die and go to heaven. The kingdom was going to be here on earth, and it was going to be lived in bodily. People who were on God's side would be brought into this kingdom of God here on earth in their bodies. But what about people who like, died already? So like, you know, suppose next year God does it and he wipes out all the wicked governments and all the people supporting them and he brings in peace and unity and justice for all forever. And we have this great kingdom of God. Well, that's nice. But like, what about my grandfather? I mean, he was a good guy. You mean like he lost out? And, you know, my mom, really? Are you kidding me? Of course she does And so Jews simultaneously developed the idea of the resurrection of the dead. This is a view you don't get in the vast majority of the Hebrew Bible, but you do get it in Daniel and you get it in the teachings of Jesus and throughout the New Testament. The teaching of the resurrection of the dead is that even dead people are going to be brought back to life and they too can enter into the kingdom. This then is Jesus' teaching. Jesus teaches all the time about the coming kingdom of God, and he does not mean heaven where your soul goes when you die. He means the kingdom that God is bringing back to earth. God made this planet, and he made it a paradise. Literally, God made the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve. They sinned, they got kicked out, we lost the Garden of Eden, but God's going to bring it back. Just as Adam and Eve were in their bodies when they enjoyed it, we'll enjoy in our bodies. Not just us, but everybody's raised from the dead. If they've been on the right side, what if they've been in the wrong side? They're going to be punished, and it's going to be an eternal punishment. But it's not eternal torture. Jesus did not believe in the eternal torture. What Jesus believed is what other apocalyptists believed, which is that when the kingdom arrives and people raised from the dead, those who are on God's side will enter the kingdom, and everybody else will realize they've been left out of the kingdom, and they'll be horribly upset. They'll be weeping and gnashing their teeth, and then God will annihilate them. it'll be complete destruction uh and so the eternal punishment is not torment it's death it's eternal because it will never end god will not reverse his decision you will be dead forever and only those who are on god's side will live in the utopian kingdom of god so that's that's jesus teaching in a nutshell jesus never talked about this torment he always talks about destruction
1: and so, uh, uh, things that might come to people's mind in in response to that would be okay. So first of all, uh, maybe you can deal with this. Uh, there's like a passage in Luke where uh, where Jesus tells the parable of uh, the of the rich man and Lazarus, and and it looks like in this parable there is some kind of existence right after you die, and it consists of rewards and punishments. Uh, rewards for for the for the poor man and punishments for the rich man, and it does doesn't seem to be like a bodily resurrection at the end of time when God comes and conquers everything. So uh, how would a how would a biblical scholar deal with a passage like that?
2: Well, no, it's a great question. And it is for people who know the Bible. It's the first passage that comes to mind, of course. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> Lazarus and the rich man. So... Um, Maybe I should summarize the story, or do you think everybody? Or, so, uh, no, I'll just yeah, uh, yeah, uh, briefly, briefly, briefly summarize it. Yeah. Okay. You got the you got this filthy rich man who's having sumptuous banquets every day and wearing fine clothes and lives in this mansion and uh, and there's this poor guy outside his gate named Lazarus who's like. Who's starving to death, and is covered with diseases, and the dogs are coming up to lick his wounds, and they both die. And the rich man ends up down in the place of torment and fire, and Lazarus ends up in Abraham's bosom, so he's, which means he's up having a banquet with the, uh, the forefathers of Israel, Abraham, the father of Israel, and the righteous and the rich man wants rich man looks up he sees Lazarus up there and he tells Abraham look would you send him down just put let him put his finger in the water and cool my tongue because it's I'm in fire down here and and uh, Abraham says sorry I can't there's a chasm between us a broad chasm and nobody can go back and forth and so you know you, you, he can't come and help and, and he says, well at least send, his, send him to my brothers at least who are still living I got these brothers and like they've got to know about this because if they, they're danger of coming here too. And Abraham says, no, I'm not going to send him because he said, they, they should just read their Bibles. If they don't believe the law of Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe it if somebody comes back from the dead. Okay, that's what he says. So even if someone is raised from the dead, they won't believe. All right, so mm. that's that. All right. So um, that well, it sure sounds like heaven and hell. <laughs> and yes, it does. Uh, so uh, several things about it. Number 1, it's a parable. A parable is not a historical statement. A parable is a uh, is an imaginative story intended to make a point. Um, that's the first one. We know it's a parable because in Luke's gospel, it's in a stri- it's a lo- section that's just filled with parables and a number of them begin with exactly the same words. There's a certain man who, <laughs> and that's how this one begins, there's a certain man who, uh, and so it's, so it's a parable. It's not, not a description of historical reality, number one. Number two, um, there's nothing in this parable about the rewards or punishment being eternal. We don't know if this is a temporary holding stage or if this is, we don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't say. It. That's number two. Number three, uh, Jesus almost certainly did not tell this parable. <laughs> and so this is, this is where we get into what you were saying earlier about how do critical scholars go about understanding what Jesus said and did. The reality is we have, we have four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have other Gospels not in the New Testament, uh, lots, lots of them. Um, but these four are the, are the main ones that people know about, and they're, the four, they're probably our four earliest Gospels, our oldest Gospels. These four Gospels, though, are almost certainly not simply historical accounts of what really happened in Jesus' life, what he, what he actually said and did, as if somebody was down there with their cell phone recording it. Uh, you know, there, there were no cell phones recording anything. The Gospels are written in Greek. Jesus' native language was Aramaic. Jesus didn't know Greek, and the authors of the Gospels did not know Aramaic. They lived outside of Israel. Jesus lived inside of Israel. They were writing 40, 50, or 60 years later. So there's reasons for thinking all of that uh, that I'm not going to go into unless you you want me to. I'm happy to. But these people are—so where do they get their stories from? These people do not claim to be followers of Jesus, the authors. The, The books are all anonymous. So they're written by, so they they don't claim to be written by followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus were lower class, illiterate, they're called illiterate in the New Testament, illiterate, Aramaic speaking peasants from some rural place in Galilee, and places like that didn't have schools. The disciples could not write. And so, where did these Gospels come from? They came from authors living 40 or 50 years later, four or five decades later, living somewhere else who have heard stories about Jesus, and they're writing them down. Okay? So, stories have been in circulation for not just a month or two, or a year or two, or a decade. I mean, they've been in circulation for 40 to 60 years. Uh, Sometimes, these Gospels completely agree with each other, but that's because... Some of them used each other. Matthew and Luke both used Mark, for example. These, again, I could, this takes a lot of time to demonstrate. Um, and, so, and the big problem is these Gospels not only are much later by people who didn't know, but had heard stories in circulation by word of mouth. And you know what happens to stories in the word of mouth. Even in the ancient world, stories got changed every time they got told. Well, so, uh, right. So it's, 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 it's not only that, but these Gospels contradict each other. All you got to do is read two accounts in the gospel and just take the same story. Take, you know, take Jesus' birth in Matthew and Luke. Just read them carefully and, and just see exactly what each one says and compare them. You can't reconcile them. There are places that cannot be reconciled. Why? Because people are changing the stories. People are changing stories. They're making up stories. They're putting things on Jesus' lips. They're saying he did things he didn't do. I mean, it's just, that's just, you know, that, that's been known by scholars for well over a century. And it's like standard stuff that gets taught in every critical biblical scholar's class. The, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man almost certainly was not one of the parables Jesus told. He he, he almost certainly did tell some parables, I think. Uh, it, you have to have ways of demonstrating these things, just like you've got to have ways of proving everything. You know, you've got, uh, you've got a, history has to be proved. You can't just take somebody's word for it. If somebody says that, uh, you know, at my inauguration, there are this number of people there, you know, you've mm-hmm. got to check to see if that's true or not. Uh, and so there, <laughs> there are certain things that you check for. Uh, and historians have a way of checking ancient stuff just as we have ways of checking modern stuff if you check the story of Lazarus' rich man there are very good reasons for thinking that jesus didn't tell the story for one thing of course it has a different view of the afterlife from the one jesus had but that you can't use that because that's the question you're trying so that's just arguing in a circle but there are other things about it um it's all found only in luke so, like, there's no one else who tells the story that we know of, and so how do you know? Like, unless it's verified, uh, you know, it's not verified. You just got it in Luke. the loop. I'll just catch to the chase because this is going on too long. The one, one reason for really knowing it wasn't wasn't the story Jesus told is because the story presupposes that a man has already been raised from the dead. The end of the story is if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if a man is raised from the dead. That means that the reader, the Christian reader, these are Christian readers reading this, are going to say, yeah, that's right. Boy, they didn't (laughs) believe when a man got raised from the dead. Boy, you got that one right. Uh, Yeah, well, that's because the storyteller knows that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And his Jewish listeners, most of them are not accepting it. And so uh, it it has marks of being a later composition. It also, by the way, does coincide with Luke's understanding of the afterlife. The author of Luke, his understanding of the afterlife is different from the understanding that Jesus himself apparently had. And so there are all these reasons for the It doesn't go back to the historical Jesus.
1: Uh, This brings up an interesting, uh, another tangential thought I was wondering about. So when you consider what purpose the Gospels were supposed to serve as written documents— Did they serve an uh, originally, were they intended by their authors to have an apologetic purpose, like as preaching documents to outsiders? Or do you think of them primarily as things that were written for Christians who were already convinced uh, to be, you know, read and and to, to, I don't know, further edify them in their faith?
2: Right. Um, this is something that's been debated over the years, although it's not debated too much anymore. Just about everybody who is an expert on this stuff thinks these books were not used for evangelistic purposes. You know, this is, it's not the sort of thing like you, you wouldn't hand the Gospel of Matthew to somebody and say, here, read this so you can become a Christian. They take a look and say, are you kidding me? No, I'm not going to read this. Come on, get out of here. And so, uh, so there, there are all sorts of hints within the books themselves that they're written by Christians, and for Christians to promote Christian faith. Having said that, uh, one of the secondary uses of these books would surely have been to tell Christians what to tell others when they were trying to convert them. Um, And so the books themselves would not be tools of conversion or evangelistic tools, but they would be informing Christians of information that they could give to others. And one of the reasons that Christians needed to have some ammunition is because they were being opposed in the Roman world. Uh, Most people thought they were nuts. And Christians said, so no, we're not nuts. Actually, we, we have the truth. And uh, I'm going I'm to explain why we have the truth. Well, you need, you need to have some kind of things to tell people to show that you got the truth. Of all the four Gospels, Luke, the one we were just talking about, gives most evidence of having this function of trying to convince outsiders that Christianity is a good thing and that it's a harmless thing. It's interesting, you know. One of the problems that Christians had in the early Roman Empire was that the guy they worship was crucified for crimes against the state. He was a, he was a state criminal who was executed for it. And so like, if that's the guy you're following, uh, you know, that doesn't look too good in the eyes of the law. And so they had to explain, well, actually, yeah, but you know, Pilate didn't want to do it. And the Romans were actually at Jesus' side. It's those damn Jews that made us do it. And so, so they, they're putting the fault on Jews, uh, and exonerating Romans to show that we're not a threat to Roman society. Uh, and Luke does that more than any of the others.
1: And doesn't Luke also repeatedly mention the fact that Jesus was innocent, like it uses the word innocent?
2: Yeah. So when he's on trial before Pontius Pilate, uh, Luke, Luke stresses uh, three times, three times, Pilate actually declares that Jesus, he's innocent. He doesn't deserve this. And the the, the Jewish leaders force him to crucify him. And then when he's being crucified, uh, in Luke's gospel, only in Luke's gospel, you know, you have the centurion who's crucified him. And in Mark's gospel, the centurion looks up at him and he realizes that, oh, my God, what were we doing? He says, truly, this man was the son of God. But in Luke's gospel, the same guy looks at him and then he said, he says this man was innocent. <laughs> and so it's, and you say, well, yeah, if he's the son of God, he's innocent. Yeah, yeah. But, but the point is, Luke is emphasizing he was innocent. And, and so it's not, you know, everybody, all the Romans knew it is the, is the Jewish people didn't recognize it.
1: So you're mentioning several uh, different strains of thought that are developing after the life of Jesus. You think the, the consensus of biblical scholars today would be that Jesus, the real historical Jesus, was some type of apocalyptic prophet. He was preaching, you know, the imminent return of God who would destroy the enemies of Israel and, and, and bring about this good kingdom on earth. Uh, but obviously that changed. You, you talk in the book about a process of de-apocalypticizing uh, the Christian faith over the following centuries. Can you, in, in brief terms, terms what does that process look like what what motivates it and how does it happen
2: uh, let me let me preface this by saying by, uh, that you're the first person who's interviewed me who could say deapocalypticize. <laughs> it drives my students nuts. I uh, uh, talk about the deapocalypticization of the tradition, and they don't. Yeah, they don't like that. So, uh, so deapocalypticize. So, if Jesus has this apocalyptic view that the apocalypse is coming and that God's going to wipe out things and it's going to uh, it's going to make everything right. The reason one, one of the functions of that kind of religious discourse, that kind of la- apocalyptic language, was to encourage people who were in the midst of suffering because you're telling them, look, yes, you are suffering. God is on your side. It's these powers of evil that are lined up against us. But God's on your side. And the point of this is that God is soon going to intervene and take out these forces of evil. So if you'll just hold on for a little while, it'll be okay. Uh, That's why the book of Revelation says, you know, he's coming soon. And it's why the apostle Paul says, you need to be alert because it's coming soon. It's going to be like a thief in the night. And, you know, if you're not awake, you're, you're going to be robbed. And so you need to be alert. And it's why Jesus himself said, truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. Jesus predicted that his own disciples would see it. Uh, And that's the nature of this kind of apocalyptic language. And it still is, by the way, people today who believe in the left behind series or who think Jesus is coming back, they invariably think, you know, it's going to be in my lifetime. Uh, You know, maybe next time, sometime next Thursday. I don't know. It's going to be pretty (laughs) soon. And so that's that's all part of part of it. In early Christianity, there was a very firm belief it was going to come back right, it's going to happen right away. It's what Jesus said. It's what Paul taught. But then the weeks went by and the months went by and the years went by. Then the decades went by and people were saying, "Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's supposed to happen by now and it hasn't happened. And people then had to come up with ways of explaining it. Uh, And there are all sorts of ways of explaining it. Some of the books of the New Testament are written to try to explain it. Second Peter is written to explain why it hasn't happened yet. Um, second Peter is the book that says that with say, look, you know, you say it's supposed to come, it didn't come, but look, you're, you're following a human calendar. Uh, in God's calendar, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So when God says it's going to happen soon, you know, if he means like in three days, that could be 3000 years, (laughs) which makes you wonder why he said it's going to be soon. I mean, like, it's not helping me much that it's going to be right. But anyway, so, uh, anyway, so. Part of what happens in the tradition is that the apocalyptic emphasis gets muted and eventually it gets dissolved and eventually gets argued against. Christianity becomes de apocalypticized, meaning that this apocalyptic emphasis that the end is going to come, the end of this world is going to come in our lifetime, uh, ends up disappearing. But something replaces it. The dualism that you get in apocalypticism is a kind of a horizontal dualism that you can put it on like a timeline. So you think of a timeline that goes across the page horizontally and you know, you've got on the left side, you've got the time up to now, and then there's a break. And then you've got the time after now. So you draw this line with a, a horizontal line with the vertical line in the middle of it. And the vertical line is breaking this evil age. That's going to be destroyed. And then there's going to be the age to come where it is good. And so utopia is going to come in suddenly and immediately when God destroys these forces of evil and brings in his kingdom. That horizontal timeline, the dualism, the horizontal dualism is retained when people get rid of the apocalypticism. They keep the dualism, but what they do is they flip the horizontal line on its axis so that now it's a vertical line, a vertical dualism. It's no longer now and then vert- horizontal, It is down here and up there. And so now it's not what's happening now and what's going to happen then it's what happens here and there and so it's it's a, and it's so it's a spatial line instead of a temporal line. The spatial line is uh that it's not going to be an act in the future it's going to be to you when you die. You're going to go up or down. And so rather than the kingdom of God being here on earth the kingdom of God is with God up in heaven. And so people will go up to heaven to be, to receive their eternal reward. It will not be life here on earth. It'll be life above with God in heaven. Well, what about the people who don't make it? Well, they go below. Well, if the righteous are rewarded, what happens to them? They're punished. Ah, really? Yeah, but now it's not a destruction anymore because God's not destroying the forces of evil. And so what people are, what these de-apocalyptists are doing are they're changing the Jewish view into the Greek view. Let me give you a little bit. Sorry, this is kind of complicated, but let me give you just the background on this. Okay. When Christianity started, it was a Jewish religion. Jesus was a Jew. His followers were Jews. They tried to convert Jews. They didn't have much success. Paul comes along. He converts Gentiles, non-Jews. These people he converts are people who were trained in Greek circles. That means they were trained thinking like Plato. You got a soul and you got a body. They're, they're not Jews. They're Greeks, the Greek background. They believe that when you die, your soul gets rewarded or punished. They come into Christianity, and they bring their beliefs with them. They don't simply adopt what Jesus taught. They, they understand in line what they already think. They already think body and soul, two separate things, rewards and punishments. And now as it gets de-apocalypticized, their views get confirmed in the new theology, which is not that there's a kingdom of God coming to earth, and some, most people are going to be destroyed— but that when you die, your soul that is now separable is going to go up to heaven or it's going to go down to hell. The person God creates is eternal because God is eternal. That means heaven is eternal and hell is eternal. And so you have eternal reward and eternal punishment. And in a sense, it's taking the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Plato and smashing them together into an amalgam that neither one of them would recognize. That's that's where heaven and
1: hell comes from. Wow. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So, so on one hand, you've got the the time elapsing is is causing the the sort of decay of the potential for apocalypticism. And then you have uh, the influence of the the Greek thought that's prevalent in the Gentile world. But what role does political power and acceptance in culture have in the the changing views of the afterlife? Because we know that originally, um, uh, you certainly point out in your book that this view that uh, Christianity was illegal everywhere in the Roman Empire is not true. That's a myth. But it was sporadically persecuted in the Roman Empire. So – over time, we know that Christianity becomes more popular, becomes more prevalent, and eventually becomes uh, accepted and even the, the uh, you know the official religion of the empire. How does that change views on the afterlife if, if at all
2: yeah no it 's a significant question because um, what I argue in my book is that precisely. Christian understandings of persecution and martyrdom uh, were, were some, those understandings were things that actually drove this new view of heaven and hell uh, related to the reason I just, just gave. So I'll explain it. It's As you said, it's not that, you know, millions of Christians are getting thrown to the lions or tens of thousands or even thousands. I mean, but people heard about it just, just like today, you know, I've got all these students, I live in the South. I live in North Carolina. These students are basically raised in Christian households who believe that they're persecuted as Christians. Mm -hmm. And you kind of look around and say, really? But Christianity's always had this kind of persecution thing, and it goes all the way back. Um, And so most early Christians were not persecuted, certainly not martyred, but they heard about persecutions and martyrdoms. And When people were martyred, when it did happen on occasion, you know, someone had to wonder, you mean this person's going to die? And like, that's it until like, I mean, when is the end coming? It's going to be another 60 years. It's not right that this person died. He's got to wait around for 60 years. And so so that that helped facilitate the idea that at the moment of death, a martyr will be in the presence of God. Uh, the mar- First, it was the martyrs. The martyrs were thought to be go immediately to the presence of God until the resurrection. But as time went on and there wasn't any like future resurrection happening, then they started thinking, well, everybody goes. And so the, per- the opposition by Rome helped facilitate this idea that it's at death uh, that it's going to happen, not in some distant future moment. So the Roman persecutions went on very sporadically, not uniformly, until the early 4th century when they became more consistent. There were some imperial decrees passed that, were, that made more plausible persecution in a lot more places. Um, but then Constantine converted to Christianity and he brought an end to the persecution in the year 313. And so what happened to the views of the afterlife? Uh, basically what happened is the views got cemented Uh, They weren't invented at that point. They were cemented at that point. Uh, They became uh, uh, stronger tools of conversion because now even the emperor believed in them. And they were used to convert people. And they became the dominant view of Western civilization because now Rome was the dominant Empire and now Roman by the end of the fourth century, into the fifth century, was becoming almost predominantly Christian. And Christianity then takes over the Roman world. It ends up becoming the religion of the Middle Ages in the West and becomes the religion of the Renaissance and the Reformation and modernity. And that's why everybody believes in heaven and hell, because everybody's always believed in heaven and hell, unless you go to the earliest times.
1: All right, it's time to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. One of the uh, interesting little tidbits from your book that that stuck with me was uh, when you're talking about the uh, the political power and acceptance of of Christianity over time. You talk about a later document called the Apocalypse of Paul that also includes uh, a guided tour of heaven and hell with the city of Christ and then the people outside it enduring eternal torment and it struck me that in this document the worst tortures are saved not for like the violent murderers or the torturers of Christian martyrs or even they're not even for non-believers the worst tortures are saved for christian theologians who held a different view than the author on what would seem to us to be a relatively minor thing, like a minor dispute about the interpretation of Christ's incarnation. What's going on here with this this harsh punishment of minute differences in theology? And do you see other examples in, in the history of religion like this that develop along these lines?
2: Yeah, it's very interesting. This, this Apocalypse of Paul is a very interesting book. Uh, so we're not sure exactly when it was written, but it's certainly after the uh, conversion of Constantine, probably at the end of the 4th century at the beginning of the 5th century, uh, the, the form of this book that we now have. It, it's important for both what uh, came after it and what came before it. The Epoxis of Paul was known to Dante. Uh, this was one of Dante's uh, influences, the earliest influence he had. Um, and so some of his ideas uh, come from that, and you'll notice that Christians get punished in Dante as well. But um, the predecessor of the Apocalypse of Paul was the Apocalypse of Peter that I talked about. And in the earliest one of these we have, the Apocalypse of Peter, as I was saying, people get uh, tortured for blasphemy God or for you know, committing adultery. Or, or, but it's always moral sins. When you get to the Apocalypse of Paul, uh, so now we're in a different period. In, in the Apocalypse of Peter, which is, you know, like 40 years after the New Testament was written, it's, um, you know, it's, it's warning Christians not to sin. Um, but the Apocalypse of Paul is really focused on Christians not sinning. And the point is not just don't, like, commit moral sins. It's not just about stealing and, uh, you, know, you know, committing infanticide or striking your parents or whatever. It's not about just stuff you do wrong it's also about what happens in the church the people who are punished the worst are the church leaders in hell uh forever and um you know so some of these are moral sins um so that if you are a uh you know, if you're a bishop of a church, the, the leader of a church, and you um, and you perform your duties of office, and then you go home and sneak out and go and commit adultery, <laughs> oh boy, you are going to have a bad. You're going to be worse than it's going to be worse for you than the run of mill adulterer. <laughs> so yeah, and so and so the bishops are being punished and the deacons are being punished. And it's like you know the, these people are like because they're they're supposed to be setting examples and they're sending the wrong, so they're worse. But the, the very worst punishment is the one that you mentioned. It's, called, it's three times worse than any other punishment. Uh, and it comes to um, Christians who think that when they they think that Christ is not a full flesh and blood human being, but he's only God. In other words, they, they, they believed Christ was so much God that he wasn't completely human like the rest of us. No, you can't say that. You'll be tortured forever worse than anybody. You know, you'll be. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. Uh, And so this is being written in a context where most people are Christian, probably in the environment this person's in. He's not worried about pagans. In the the earlier preface of the Apocalypse of Peter, idolaters are punished and persecutors of Christians are punished, not in the Apocalypse of Paul several hundred years later because you don't have those people anymore. And it's just not moral sins. It's sins in the church that really bother him more than anything, especially bad theology. <laughs>
1: I wonder if that's just a, an availability heuristic issue. Like if this is somebody who's writing Christian literature in the name of Paul, they're probably thinking a lot about their enemies with theological, minor theological disputes. Yeah. It's just what's on their mind.
2: It's, it's what's on their mind and it's who are the, who are the big enemies of uh, Christianity. And, and, you know, they're the ones who get it the worst. So, in the second century in the Apocalypse, of Peter wrote, the worst enemies were the persecutors. Uh, th- those who uh, were committed idolatry were worshipped idols. And those who, you know, committed sins, uh, violations of God's law, those were enemies. By the time you get to Paul, the enemies are in the church because the churches are split. You get bad theologians. You got people believing crazy things. You got, you know, and you got immorality in the church. And so those are the ones being punished.
1: Okay, Bart, I've got one more question. So in the Divine Comedy... Uh, people who Dante runs into in Purgatory, I, I noticed, are constantly begging Dante. To go back and tell their relatives, especially female relatives, that they should be praying for them more, where does this idea come from that the prayers of the living, especially the prayers of women, were useful and important to those in the afterlife and could affect their fate there. It does precede the official Catholic doctrine of purgatory, right uh,
2: no, it comes after oh okay, so the okay so yeah, let me get a little bit of background on it because the um I deal with this in my book. I have a section on purgatory uh, in my book, as well as a section, by the way, on the idea that everybody gets saved, (laughs) which Mm. is also interesting, but, but with purgatory, um, this is an important topic for a lot of Catholics because the Catholic Church continues to teach uh, purgatory. And I'm surprised. I've talked with a number of Catholics after I wrote my book who didn't realize re- really what purgatory is. They didn't, they didn't realize they'd have to suffer in there. <laughs> they <laughs> thought it was just like a holding <laughs> pen. And no, uh, I'm
1: sorry. I oh, yeah, should read the good. purgatorio.
2: Yeah, the eyelids yeah exactly, so shut. Yeah. It's not fun. Yeah, it's not fun. So, um so purgatory, for, for those of you who are or not Catholic or those of you Catholic who weren't uh, paying attention, <laughs> uh, purgatory is the, is the doctrine that eventually developed that says that there's not just heaven and hell. Um, the reason for purgatory developing is, again, it's kind of the same issue of justice. I mean, it's not really fair that uh, everybody dies and gets the same thing. And so rewards and punishments seem only fair. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, not everybody is deserving as a saint, you know, going to go to heaven, but it's not fair for them to be tortured forever. And so there's so they come up with this middle place, uh, which is for it is it's specifically for people who are going to end up in heaven. But they have to pay for their sins first. Their, their, their sins, they are not holy enough to go directly. They need to be purged of their sins and that's why it's purgatory because they're being purged of their sins and purging is painful (laughs) and so uh, they have to go through a certain number of punishments but uh, they can uh, get out faster if uh, living people intercede for them Um, so what's that all about where does it come from so what I do in my book is I, uh, I don't talk at length about the later doctrine of purgatory, except to say, or, Dante, or Dante's purgatorio, except to say that the official Catholic doctrine uh, was not implemented until the 13th century. Um, and so uh, so you know Christianity' had been around for uh, since the first century so it's uh, you know, 12, twelve centuries before purgatory becomes a standard doctrine in the Catholic Church. The term purgatory was invented in the twelfth century uh, and so there are people who claim that purgatory wasn't invented till the twelfth or thirteenth century. And so in one kind of technical sense, I guess that's right. But what I try to do in my book is show that there were earlier forerunners of this very idea that some people who die are punished temporarily before being allowed to uh, enter their heavenly reward. And what I do is I look at the uh, earliest examples of that, which are in texts that people, the general run of the mill person wouldn't no, uh, I mean, if they don't know Dante, they don't know the, probably the, uh, you know, the martyrdom of Perpetua <laughs> or uh, or the acts of Thecla or. But there are these there are these books uh, that that talk about um, a saint and she's she, it's usually a woman, a living woman who has a special relationship with God. She's very holy. Who, um, who prays for either a relative or somebody that they're requested to pray for who's, being, who's having a, a bad afterlife and God hears their prayers. Here's the person's prayers. And the person then is released from their punishment and is, is, is rewarded. Uh, and so there are several stories like this. They're fascinating stories in their own terms that we won't get into, but they're, they're really interesting stories. that start out in the second century uh, and go up into the, the third century and then, and then onward. And so this idea that it's possible to, uh, kind of get out early, get out of punishment early uh, is an idea, uh, that's floating around. And, uh, so some people did have this idea that there's this other place somehow that where, and so people have these various ideas and, um, you find them in St. Augustine, for example, uh, plays with this idea a little bit uh he's not quite sure about it but he affirms it and seems to affirm it in some places and so so it becomes a standard idea but then only later in the 13th century does it become a doctrine and there are very interesting books if you if you got people among you your leader readers who are really interested in um, just kind of the scholarly views of things, there's a guy named Jacques Legoff who wrote this whole book called "The Birth of Purgatory," that explains why, in the 12th or 13th century, this became all became something, uh, and it became, and it wasn't just for religious reasons; it's because of the socio-political context within which uh, it developed.
1: Anyway, it's just called "The Birth of Purgatory." They can look that up and find it. All right. Bart, I think we're running uh, toward the end of our our time here, but I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Again, I genuinely really loved the book, as I've enjoyed all your books before, Heaven and Hell. Uh, I think uh, if you enjoyed our conversation today, listeners, you should definitely check out the book, but you should also look up Bart's blog. Bart, do you want to talk about that for a moment? I do. (laughs) Nothing. I like talking about more. Uh,
2: So uh, I have a blog. Um, I've had it for uh, over eight years. Um, started it in uh, 2012. On this blog, I post um, I post five times a week. Most of my posts are between 1,200 and 1,400 words. And the posts deal with everything. Having to do with all the stuff we're talking about now, and about anything about the New Testament, the historical Jesus, the writings of Paul, the Book of Revelation. It talks about martyrdoms and persecution. It talks about women in early Christianity. It talks about Jews in relationship to Christians. But I, and I also talk about early Judaism and the Hebrew Bible and Roman religion. Like it's <laughs> mass is the thing. I've been doing this, you know, every week, five five posts. Um, there's a membership membership fee to join uh, the blog. Uh, and the reason there's a membership fee is because I use the blog to raise money for charity. Um, I, uh, the, the membership fees low. It's about, you know, it's about 50 cents a week. I mean, it's like, like the the right now we're going to be, we're instituting a new blog soon. We're launching a new blog, but, but right now a a year membership is $24 and 95 cents. And for that, you you get all of these hundreds and hundreds of posts, plus archives going back eight years. Um, So I don't keep any of the money myself and not a penny goes to operating expenses. Um, And so all of the money goes directly to charities. Uh, We have raised uh, about uh, $950,000 over the years and that amount is going up it looks like this year we're hoping we're going to hit $200,000 just for this year uh, from people uh, joining the blog and so uh, we also have, there's an option of like a, if you just want a one month membership for less or try it for three months you can do that but just go to the Barterman blog and uh, check it out and uh, and you'll see all the money the charities all go to uh, actually they all go to things dealing right now with the crisis uh, mainly charities dealing with hunger and homelessness uh, both localities uh, locally and uh, internationally. So I support five, five charities and all the money goes out to them.
1: Bart, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. All right, so that does it. Uh, but thanks again to Bart for uh, for sharing his expertise with us. I really had fun talking to him. Uh, and at the end there, I just want to remind you yet again, Bart mentioned his blog. If you're interested in this sort of subject matter, his blog is a great place to go deep. Plus, as Bart mentioned, every penny of the subscription money goes to great causes. So you can check that out at ehrmanblog.org. And erman is spelled E-H-R-M-A-N. So that's E-H-R-M-A-N blog.org. And again, the book is Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife by Bart Ehrman.
0: In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, just uh, make sure that you rate, review, and
1: subscribe. That really helps the show out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at StuffToBlowYourMind.com Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. So, just to be sure, you